0: On December 23rd, a 21 year old, I should say December 23rd, 1855, a 21 year old preacher stood in the pulpit in New Park Street Chapel in South London and preached from the passage that Pastor Darrell read just a couple moments ago from Micah. He said, This is the season of the year when whether we wish it or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. He went on to lament that the church had fallen into the trap of celebrating Christmas in the way that the rest of culture did, because among other things, Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th anyway. But it wasn't all bad, because in his mind, people worked too hard throughout the year. And Christmas at least forced us, or forced them, forced people to to gather together, to celebrate with friends, to to rest. And most importantly, it brought the incarnation to the forefront of our minds and the forefront of the church. And that couldn't be a bad thing at all. The preacher was Charles Spurgeon, who was just starting his career and would later become one of the most well-known English preachers in all of history. By the time he got to the end of the sermon, he was pointing to the second verse of the carol that we've been focusing on throughout Advent. This, this come thou long expected Jesus. Charles Wesley, a, a, another Englishman, he wrote it. He wrote it a uh, hundred years earlier, and it had become a familiar song already in the church. Now, Wesley and Spurgeon lived in a culture very different than ours. Very, very different than ours today. Wesley grew up Anglican and along with his brother was a founding father of the Methodist movement. And Spurgeon was Baptist. I promise I'm still Presbyterian. Spurgeon was Baptist, though being Baptist looked different then than it does today. And they both had a different understanding of what royalty looked like. Being a king, it actually meant something. It carried a sense of responsibility, a sense of respect, a duty. A king was expected to work hard for his people, to provide for them, to protect them, and to further the impact that their kingdom had. In their time, and in their culture, it took time and training to become a king. So during his sermon, Spurgeon pointed to Wesley's hymn and said, Men are born princes. Men are are born princes, but they are seldom born kings. And yet, that's not how it was with Jesus. That's, That's not how it was with the one that Micah and his people were looking for. Born a child and yet a king. Born to deliver, to set people free. Born to reign forever. All from the moment his eye greeted the sunshine, as Spurgeon said. During Advent, most of us are quick to picture nativity scenes. We we picture baby Jesus lying in a manger surrounded by animals, surrounded by angels and his parents, maybe even the magi. We don't typically think of a king sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hand. Yet Advent, it's about both of those images, Jesus in the major and Jesus on the throne. And we live in this time between when Jesus was born and when Jesus will come again. And in the meantime, we need to remember that God is at work in our midst. Last week I mentioned that Isaiah's prophecy covers three different seasons for the Israelite people. The, the first part um, comes from the northern kingdom, or comes right as, right before the northern King had, kingdom had fallen, and the Israelites who were, were left in Judah, in the southern region, and they were on the cusp of Babylonian exile. So Isaiah, he, he calls them to repent and to turn toward God. That's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Then we get to the second part of Isaiah, and it, it was written while they were in exile. It includes words of hope and words of encouragement. And the third part, it addresses a season of rebuilding after they had returned. That's where we were last week. But our second passage this morning comes from the beginning of that second section. The second part where where Isaiah is, is encouraging The people, and they're looking toward a new covenant. So at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, we read this Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads them that, that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the most memorable uh, Christmas Eves that that I've ever had was the last one before I was ordained as a pastor. Haley's family uh, has Norwegian roots, and uh, her dad had never visited the country of his ancestors. So instead of exchanging presents that year, he said, hey, let's go visit Norway together. We started in a small fishing town called Bergen. Anybody ever been to Bergen? Oh, awesome, Bergen's beautiful. We started in a small fishing town called Bergen, and then took a Christmas cruise through through the fjords, uh, and then came back and spent a week in Oslo. And before going to church in an old church in Tromso on Christmas Eve, we passed through the Arctic Circle. It was an incredible trip. But see, there's this this thing about being in the Norwegian Sea, in the dead of winter. It's dark. It's dark. Especially the most northern parts of it. The the most northern part that we got to, it never really, sun never really came up. It got dusk for two hours. It got dusk for two hours. We took this picture, one of us did, Haley or I took this picture while uh, we were coming in or out of port one day. uh, And I, I can't remember if it was in the morning or the evening because everything was thrown off at that point. Now, there was one night where Haley's brother Luke and I were out in the, the, the hot tub out on the bow of the ship. We were the only people outside. We were the, we were the only people outside, and we were looking out on the, the dark sea. I remember breathing in the cold air, seeing the snow fall and disappear into nothingness. We were going up and down with every swell. It was incredibly mysterious. It was incredibly unsettling. Now, most of the time when I think of wilderness, I picture being in the mountains or in the desert. But that night, just beyond the Arctic Circle, was haunting. It was as haunting as anything I have ever experienced. When Isaiah opens, Chapter 40, with these words, comfort, comfort, we're invited to remember the times that we have been in the wilderness. The times that we have been in a place that have been haunting, unsettling, scary, where we felt alone, like we were the only person in the planet. And we hear that comfort, comfort. We're reminded that even in those vast, dark spaces, God is with us. That God is for us and that God is doing something underneath the surface. Now at this point in his prophecy, Isaiah is shifting from speaking to the people who are on the cusp of losing everything to a people who were the survivors, the, the, the remnant of people who were licking their wounds in a foreign land. And as he speaks, we're given three reminders that echo Wesley's lyrics about a child Being born a king who came to set his people free. The the first reminder is that God is always at work, even when we can't see it, even in the midst of chaos. When Isaiah shared these words, God's people were defeated, they were angry. I'm guessing some of them thought that they had let God down or or that their ancestors had let God down, and and others thought that God had been the one who failed them. And right off the bat, Isaiah starts with these words, Comfort, Comfort. Now, it's not at all like he's saying, you know, kind of patting them on the shoulder and saying, They're there. They're there. Everything is going to be okay. It wasn't a pity party. That's not what this is about. It was a projection about the future. Almost like John with Revelation, he's saying, you might not see it now, but God doesn't abandon you. You are not alone. Your best days are still to come. Comfort. Isaiah delivers words of promise. He gives words of hope. One of the the more fascinating stories out of the Bible about God working under the surface in a way that that most people couldn't really see at the time is is the story of Esther. The story of Esther. And we're actually going to have a series on Esther next next year. Um, Esther, she was an orphan who had the cards stacked completely against her. And somehow, some people would say it was through coincidence. I don't think we would say that's through coincidence. She finds herself in the place to become queen of Persia at a critical point in history. And as she delivers her people, we're reminded of God's providence, that God was moving under the surface, and that God continually showed up at such a time as this, probably the most well-known verse of Esther. Now Esther, she's, she's bold. Esther's brave but we don't have any any evidence of her answering god and saying here i am here i am like like we do with moses in the wilderness in the burning bush or crying out in song like mary does eventually with the mag- magnificat in luke i'm guessing her response was more along the lines of what is happening why am i here what's happening why am i here what What's God up to? Which isn't to say that Moses and Mary didn't have those thoughts at some point as well. When Isaiah speaks to the exiled people, he doesn't give them a word of judgment. He, he doesn't say, look, you blew it. That's why you're in exile. Instead, he brings a word of comfort, a word of comfort to a confused and wounded people in exile. So my encouragement for us this morning, out of these first two verses of Isaiah 40, really out of these first two words of Isaiah is comfort, comfort. We can't always see what God is up to. We, we don't always know what God is up to. But we can find solace knowing that God is always at work. When my uncle Dave passed away a little over a year ago, he left my dad, his brother-in-law, his 1969 Stingray Corvette. My uncle took pride in everything in this Stingray and and wanted to make sure that this Stingray stayed everything original. From the red interior, to the 8-track, to the wiring, to the, the battery with a lifetime warranty from Sears. My my uncle would drive the car, but he would only really take it out once or twice a month, and he would only go for a a, a couple blocks at a time. And the rest of the time, it just sat in the garage. It just sat in the garage. And and, well, to put it gently, um, my mom was less than thrilled with my dad having a new toy in the garage to work on. But my uncle left it to my dad because he knew that my dad would take care of the car. Now, my dad, he spent time, a lot of time, researching parts, joining antique Corvette groups to ask questions, taking everything apart, putting it back together again. My, my dad's vision is the same as my uncle's, is to try to keep everything as original as possible, but my dad also wants it to be able to go more than two blocks at a time. And if it's going to run, and run well, it needed work. And that restoration doesn't stop. It has to keep being done if the car is going to continue to run, if the car is going to continue to work. The next section of Isaiah 40 paints a picture of a voice calling from the wilderness, raising valleys, lowering mountains, leveling the grounds to make a highway for God to move to deliver the people from exile, to restore them to their promised place. So during Advent, we're invited to take time to reflect on what God has done in the past, throughout history, throughout God's people and Scripture, but also in our own personal lives. To see the places where God has restored what was broken. To remember that we've been through hard times, And that we will continue to be brought through hard times. To remember what we've gone through to get to where we are now and today. And Advent reminds us to remember that God is still doing that sort of work. None of us, none of us is kind of made up of spared parts where we're just kind of thrown to the side of the road without value or without use in God's kingdom. Isaiah's reminder for an exiled people living in Babylon is that they had a a purpose in the restoration of all things. We need to remember that we have that purpose, too. Now, the last half of Isaiah's comforting words for the people in exile remind them that God's promise holds true forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, seasons change, rhythms of life are disrupted, and, and plans we often think will come into fruition don't. But that doesn't mean that God changes. At the core of His reminders, the theme of God's faithfulness. God has shown up before, and God will show up again. So last month, Pastor Dale talked about, uh, when we celebrated our our 55th anniversary, he he talked about this. He, he, He said, God has given us a future, and we might not know how that future looks. Our responsibility is to put our trust in God, who consistently makes things new. We don't know how it looks, but God is at work, because God's Word endures forever. Now, Advent gives us the opportunity to lean into that reality, to remember that God, we're, God's Word endures forever because as we wait for two weeks from today, the celebration of the God who was born in a lowly manger, we also anticipate the baby who was born as a king, who is still setting people free daily. May we find peace knowing that God is is always at work. Even under the surface when we can't see it, that God is always restoring, always redeeming, and always holding true to His promise. Let's pray. God of hope, God of peace, as we continue the journey through Advent this year, we ask that You'd work in and through us so that your kingdom might be realized in all that we do, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.